0: The saying goes, uh, is pretty familiar. Ignorance is what? Bliss, bliss right? I, I challenged that this morning. It's not always bliss. It may be feel bliss for a while, but eventually it winds up in, um, in something worse, right? So suppose this morning uh, I said, hey, uh, I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, they let me know that there is a carbon monoxide leak at your house. And uh, I, I said, look, here's, here's the deal. If, if you go back to your house I know you can't see it, I know you can't taste it, I know you can't smell it, but it's there, and uh, it's dangerous, right? It'll, it'll kill you, it'll suffocate you, you'll die, and uh, things won't go well for you. So I've given you like a bit of crit- critical information that you were ignorant of before you came, right? And now that I've given it to you, you you've got to do something with that information. So ignorance is, is only bliss so far as it's... Um, as it's, it's not, like, dangerous, I guess. But once you've also been given that information, you move from ignorance to a new category, which is, like, informed, right? And what you do with that information now is, is you're accountable for it. So I've warned you about it. I've said, look, here's, the, here's what's going to happen with carbon monoxide. You're going to get a headache. You might get dizzy. You'll get sleepy, and then you fall asleep, and you won't wake up. And you go, man, that's weird. I've been having headaches all week. And so there's, like, some kind of external like, evidence that you've experienced, and, you, and you're wondering, maybe that's related to that thing. And you go, nah. No, I just didn't drink water very good on Wednesday. That's, that can't be right, right? He doesn't have any idea what's going on in my house. And so as I bring to, like, your attention these things and I start to give you some other information about it, your ignorance has moved to a, a state of danger. So uh, ignorance comes from this word of gnosis. It's the Greek word that means knowledge, right? So you're, you're ignorant. It means you, you don't have the knowledge of, of something, and um, this also is the, the 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 foundational word or the, the root of um, the 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 term we use for somebody that's agnostic, right? We we say, "Hey, do you believe in God?" And you go, "Hey, I'm agnostic. Like I don't I don't have knowledge about that thing." What they're really saying is, "I don't have enough information to to say with um, certainty in my in my view anyway that I, I believe that God is there, or I could prove it. Maybe is a better way to say that. And it's also, where we get the term for Gnosticism, that one's not as familiar to us. We get the idea of being agnostic, and the prefix there, A, means without, right? So without knowledge is somebody, but, but Gnostic, without that prefix, just means I do have knowledge, and Gnosticism is the idea that I have secret knowledge. I, I have a knowledge that I've acquired that, that is the same as, um, as a certain amount of revelation that uh, gets me to a, a state of enlightenment, that other people don't necessarily have. They could get to it, but they're going to have to do some work. So Gnosticism it carries with it both the idea of being informed, but in a secret way. Like it's not accessible to everybody else. So there's like a secret knowledge. If you want to think about the Illuminati, they're Gnostics, okay? That's, that's the idea, secret knowledge. Now you think, now that's an that's ancient term. And you would want to distance yourself, and especially distance yourself from where we've been at in Acts, where Paul's before this council, and he's been sort of stating his case, not from Scripture, but he, he's moved from the, the God of general creation and revelation to the idea that he has um, proven himself by sending uh, his son and, and him dying and being resurrected to life. And so he's been setting out sort of a, a set of proofs here, and we think, well, that is not as useful to me because he's he's doing this for like these ancient philosophers, and I don't I don't think of Zeus as something I have to worry about, and I don't uh, idol worship in the sense that I'm bowing down to some like created little statue, and the truth is that the heart of agnostics and gnosticism is, is still beating. It just takes on a different term, and it's it's the same ideas that, that uh, lay the framework for a worldview that says, hey, I I I. Uh, I either don't have enough information about that to be categorical or I do have information in my definition of what information looks like to make some conclusions. Now, um, the word that Paul has been using when he saw the, the, um, the statue to the unknown God is this word of, of ignorance. It's the same word that he says, and what you are worshiping in ignorance or unknown is what I'm going to declare to you, which is that I don't have knowledge of that. So rather than that being something that's, that's far away and distant, something we can't necessarily relate with, there is a group of people that um, that we uh, maybe have a, a formal label for now that we didn't have before, and they're called the nuns. Not the N-U-N-S, not nuns like, you know, long black robe and you know what I mean, nuns. Not, not those kind of nuns, not Catholic nuns, but nuns as in no no affiliation, no formal tie to any religious uh, particular f- formal uh, way of of doing things in religion. So 46 million people represents roughly one quarter of the population. So for every four people you run into, one of them would say, look, I don't formally belong to a, a, a religious category, but I have some spiritual beliefs, okay? Now, what you need to know about that is that comes out in some weird ways. So because of who makes up this group, they are both agnostics and gnostics and atheists but the smallest group in there is the one you don't expect which is the atheists so let's get to a couple of things 68 percent of those people believe in God I put God in quotes there because you're going to find out it's their definition of who God is not not who God says God is so these people 46 million of them roughly that uh, are out there they have some sense of there being a God out there and it's the God of their imagination the God of uh, of their definition 58% 58% of them say they have a deep connection with the divine, either through the earth or, or something um, like creation. It, God is in creation. You know, when I'm in the mountains, I'm, God's there, okay? And, and maybe some elements of that is true in a Christian sense, but it's also not true. It's saying creation is God, or God has imbued himself like literally into creation. So there's like a misled aspect of that. 37% say they have a spiritual connection but aren't religious. It's that, that old uh, adage, right? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. As in, I don't like the, the rules and I don't like having to adhere to anybody else's doctrine. I'll make up my own and that way I can feel like I'm connected to God. I'm safe in that sense but I, I'm not going to tie myself to any particular doctrine because then that would put some, some onerous on me to adhere to it, right? But only 4%, the smallest subset, are ones who truly say, I, a, right, that prefix A, without, there is no God. And these people are, are, are concluding the, the same thing that what the other people are saying, I don't have enough information to conclude that. They're concluding something as well. There, there is no one who is an agnostic in the truest sense of the term. No one is strictly agnostic. Everybody has a certain amount of information. You are constantly making choices based on the information you have. You're taking it in and you're saying, I either agree with this, I believe it, or I don't believe it. So nobody is without knowledge in the sense that they can't make any kind of conclusion. And so the obstacle to uh, belief or faith is not truth itself. Truth is not so far away from us that it's unobservable, it's unobtainable, it's intangible, right? That's, that's kind of how it, it, it's, it's typically trotted out. The, the true variable here or the obstacle is ourselves. Ourselves and how we take in that information and then choose to operate within that. Okay, so uh, we are the, the, the true variable in all of this. So no one is agnostic and we value often then our own, our own faculties. That's, that's our ability to get our arms around either the observable evidence or the way that um, we may, it makes us feel or the, the thing that we observe in wider culture as accepted. And then we put those, those filters on top of the truth. And we say, I either agree with that or I don't agree with that. And that is what produces our behavior. And our behavior tells us what we believe about something. And so we often can dismiss the consequences of something because we've run it through this other filter. Now, why do I bring all that up? Okay, so it's all to say this. I've given you some information about carbon monoxide. I said there is a leak in your house. You may or may not be able to go home and measure it or see it. But I've given you this information. What you do with it is totally up to you. But you bear the the consequence of that. You bear the burden of... Of your application. You are, you are accountable in that sense, right? So what we do with the information that's out there is, is important. And, and there's lots of reasons that we might have to, to respond to it in a negative way. You, you don't, maybe you don't believe carbon monoxide's a real thing. If I can't see it, then it ain't real, right? And now I, I jest a little bit, but people treat God the same way. Well, I can't see him, so he's not there. Well, okay. Well, you treat a lot of things that you can't see as real, all the time, so it's not the fact that faith is out there as this this um, contrast to something that you can see and feel and touch. Those aren't really truly the two um, views that are being contrasted. Um, it's it's something else. So, a hundred percent of people are agnostic and gnostic. You you don't have information exhaustively about anything, but you do have information about everything that you choose to do. You always are choosing. Whatever it is, your response is based on the information you have. And so that is our message this morning. Ignorance and information. This is going to sum up what Paul's been doing through this whole argument in Athens. Before this court, what he's been walking these people through, he's been giving them information and calling for a response to that information based on what he says. Both the information implies and what the consequences of that information are. And so they're going to process that, and they have to respond. So it has to do with revelation and the command of revelation. So let me pray for us this morning for our time in the Word, and we'll continue. Father, pray for our um, hearts this morning, and our minds, and our eyes, and our ears. You have um, revealed yourself in Scripture, in its for the purpose of us knowing you, and you've called for a response. Which is faith, repentance. So I just ask this morning that you would um, help us in your spirit to respond to what is true this morning and um, lay aside maybe some of our uh, preconceptions, our our barriers and our filters that maybe perhaps we put in the way of faith and not responded appropriately to you. So, um, Father, be with me, keep me from error. I pray that it would be your words this morning and not mine. Speak whatever you have to say, and uh, do what you will. We love you, and ask this in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. All right, so Acts 17, verses 30 through 34. You said, we did that last week. No, we didn't. I added another verse, okay? You're welcome. Here we go. Acts 17, starting verse 30. This is the times of ignorance. God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. This is the response. He's given all the information. He's summing it up. And and it says their response to this is some mocked when they heard about the resurrection. But others said, we will hear you again about this. That's a different kind of response. That's a, "Mm, maybe. Okay, that's a, I want to hear more about this. Or I'll hear more about this later. And so Paul went out from their midst. Now, you need to know something. Most people don't think that Paul actually got to finish his presentation. It's like he got to the part about the resurrection, and because that elicited this response, um, this, is, this is what happened. They kind of cut him off, and so he's, he's told to leave. You get out of here. But some people, some men joined him, and they believed. That's the third response. Some people believed what he had to say. Some people said, I, I think that's true. That resonates with what I, I see and what I feel. And so they go and they follow him, And among whom were also Dionysus, the Areopagite. So you need to see that the person, one of the people who respond, was somebody who belonged to this, this council, this philosophical group of, of know-it-alls. And a woman named Damaris and others with him. It must be notable that she also followed with them. And Paul's, in the last couple of chapters, noted several times how there were women of prominence who also joined this movement. So, let me recap for you the last, yes, I'm not going to, I'm just going to topically recap for you. Because I don't have time for all that. I'm going to topically recap for you where we've been and what Paul has presented so the first week, we talked about the importance of what God, what, what God has done in his, his word, in scripture. Because everywhere Paul went, if there was a synagogue and he had a group of people that he could argue from the Old Testament, he did. Because they already accepted this as, as the truth. And so they said, look, if I can connect the idea that what God said about the Messiah is fulfilled in Christ, then you must accept that Jesus was this Messiah. So we talked about the importance of God's word. And then we uh, continued. And then the next week we talked about idols because he talks about how they have this unknown idol and their response to the idols and how they worship these things. And this pollutes our mind, which led to the third week, which talked about the clarification about knowing who God really is. And it's not the God of our imagination, it's the God who's, who's revealed himself both in his word and the prophets and in Christ himself. And then we got to where he asserts that the resurrection is the proof of all of this. The resurrection is the high point and the implications thereof, well, that was last week, okay? And so now we get to the conclusion, and, and what Paul's going to sum it up is this, look, there's been a while here, the times of ignorance, that's a, that's a collective idea, the times of ignorance God has overlooked and so we need to um, talk, talk about uh, this Times of ignorance and what, it, what it's referring to. So when we talk about Revelation, and you think that's the scary book at the end of my Bible that talks about all this stuff in the end, and we're not going there this morning. Revelation just simply means... The, the unveiling of something, to show something for what it is. It's been revealed, right? It's in the Word. Revelation is to reveal, to show, uncover, and to gain understanding. And what Paul's done by, by telling these people who God is and what Jesus is as the Messiah for them, he, he's unveiling for them who God is. And the times of ignorance are referring to this. Hebrews 1 just says it simply like this. Long ago, many times, different ways, God has revealed himself. But recently, or in these last times, he's revealed himself through his Son, and he's spoken to us through the Son, that's Jesus. And so he said, this refers to the, the revelation of God or God's self-revelation. And he's totally or fully revealed as much as he will be in Christ. In Christ, the fullness of God dwelt. Jesus is called the exact imprint of the nature of God. Okay? So whatever you can look at about Jesus is true about God. And whatever God gave Jesus for us to observe is going to be the way that we should think about God. And the only way you have to know that is through God's word. So you can see how these elements are all connected. You must know God's word. You must not have a smaller view of who God is and worship a false God, right? You must truly hold that as your highest value. And Jesus is authenticated as that Messiah, as God himself in the resurrection. And so God has, we're told, overlooked these times of ignorance. And so he makes a contrast now. He says, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now. So there's contrast. What's different about now that wasn't true previously, like yesterday or the day before or maybe a few years ago? And so there's a contrast of ages or times. The distinction of now is important because it has to do with the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. Other, other passages point this out for us. First, in Ephesians chapter 3, I've underlined and highlighted a couple of different things for you. Okay? Ephesians 3 Starting in verse 4 says, when you read this, Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. You can perceive my insight. Well, what is the mystery of Christ? Well, it wasn't made known to the sons of men in other generations. That's the times of ignorance. As it has now been, what? Revealed. Okay? It's been unveiled. I've shown you what the mystery is. Okay? So, uh, in Colossians 1 Starting in 26, it says, The mystery that was hidden for the ages, that mystery was hidden for the ages and for the generations past, is now what? Revealed to his saints. To them God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory. So it's not just that um, God has made himself known, it's that he's making himself known to a new group of people. He's, he's extending his, uh, his revelation to uh, the Gentiles. And the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's Christ in you and among you. Now, the last one in Romans chapter 16. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, the times of ignorance. All right? He, he's now revealed it. It has now been disclosed. Revelation disclosed. And now uh, through the prophetic writings, he's talking about how they, it was all foretold, that Jesus fulfilled all those things, has now been made known to what? A new group of people. All the nations. So he's making this this distinction between what used to be and what is now. What used to be was the times of ignorance, when God had only revealed himself to the nation, the people that he had made a covenant with, through Abraham and his offspring. And they were the stewards of the promise. But now, God has sent his son, and he was publicly displayed as the Messiah. He was publicly crucified. He was publicly resurrected. And before all men, he was shown as God's son and the propitiation for sin. That's just a big fancy word. We'll get to it. So everything has been revealed. Now I want you to see the importance of this because you think, I don't have enough information, I'll go looking for it. If I said, there's a mystery, you go, I need to go investigate, right? I gotta explore it, I gotta figure it out, okay? This mystery is not solvable by men's efforts. Paul made that distinction before. He said he compared men like groping around in the darkness, hoping to feel their way towards God. The, the, in, the, the, the meaning of that word that they're groping about doesn't have a hopeful um, prospect. They're they're groping about, hoping to, but they won't. Okay? And he says that's that's what men were like. And the key here is that in all of those passages about the mystery said that it's solved not by men's efforts, but it's solved by God choosing to reveal himself. God revealing himself. That's how the, the mystery's solved. It's not uncovered by man. They didn't go through and say, you know, we've we've examined creation and we found God in creation. Here's what he's like. It was God had to had to send his son. Say, here's what I'm like, right, and what Jesus said and taught and how Jesus had to correct all of their misconceptions about what um, the Messiah would be and who God really is and what he really wants from us. Okay, so there's this now-then distinction. The fullness of the plan of salvation is the, the difference now. It was not revealed in times of ignorance, but now it is. So God is asking for a response now. Because things are different now than they used to be, he needs you to respond. He doesn't need you. He's, he's calling. He's commanding you to respond. Revelation is a gift of grace. Here's the natural progression. If, if, um, if I say to my kids, um, hey, Jaden, and then he doesn't look at me, which happens frequently, okay? okay. Jaden, I have something to tell him, but if he doesn't look at me and I say, well, he does not pay attention to me, so I'm not going to continue this conversation, Okay. His response to my calling him is, um, is going to be, my, my response to him is going to be based on his response to me, right? The natural progression is that if you, don't, if you ignore me, I'm not going to give further revelation. There's a reason for that. Why? Because you're not paying attention. And so if I continue to say, Jaden, you're about to get hit by a bus, okay? But he doesn't pay attention to me. Not only is he accountable for that, but if I continue to give him more information without his responding to me, I'm just heaping up condemnation, on his ignorance. Are you, are you checking with this? So God is gracious to interfere with this because the natural progression of things is that he doesn't respond to you if you don't respond to him. He's given himself in creation. The argument through Romans 1 is this. God is, what can be known about God can be assessed in creation. There's gotta be some powerful creator out there. That can be known. But it says that men suppress this in their sin. And God, God's response to this is not to go, no, 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 I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. He says, that's fine, I'll turn you over and I'll let you continue in your blindness. So without God's interference, without God's choosing to interfere and break this cycle, we don't know who God is. But what, what Paul's arguing is that he overlooked the fact that he said, Jaden, and you didn't respond, okay? He overlooked that because the fullness wasn't there, but now it's there and he's calling your attention to it again. And he's saying, see, my graciousness, I'm interfering with the cycle. I could have let you continue on in ignorance, but I'm not. So he's, he's, he's breaking the cycle, and he's calling their names. And he's saying, now I'm overlooking that. And so Revelation always demands a response. Revelation demands a response so that when it's put out there, you're accountable for what you know or what's at least been made available to you. I said there's a monoxide leak in your house. You're accountable for it. Revelation demands a response. And it's positive or negative, and your your positive response to it brings further revelation. This is true of individuals. It's true of, of uh, collective societies. It's true of nations on the whole. That's the biblical record. What you do with little, you will do with much. And what you don't do with little, you won't get to do with much, because God will take even the little you have. This is this is this is a parable uh, saying that Jesus used all the time to teach about what God had had given Israel by letting him. He gave them all the revelation they needed to know, all the promises, and their response to it was indignation, indifference. They, they just set it aside. They didn't care. They abused it, if you will. And so even what they had was taken away, and now it's given to everyone. Okay? So the, the natural cycle is that without some kind of interference, you're going to continue on in ignorance. But God intervenes in that cycle. He reveals himself, but it's going it's to cost you something. He's put you in danger. You're imperiled because you're accountable now for the information. He's made it available. He's made it available in Christ. So he says, now here's what God has. Times of ignorance, now God has commanded you to do something. He's not asking politely. He's not not saying, hey, I've got a 30-day trial offer, money-back guarantee, here's what I want you to do. He's not suggesting it. It says God commands man to repent. The revelation demands this kind of response. He's commanding repentance. God does not passively suggest that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is the savior. He's calling all men everywhere to repent. That's everyone, not just men. That's, that's, that's supposed to be the exhaustive totality. It was limited to this group of people, but now the revelation has gone out to everyone. So he's calling all men in all places, all the nations, hear it that way, to repent. This is the action he wants. All of us need to repent. So if you're not familiar with this term, repentance is coming from this group term with it's uh, compound word, right? Metanoia, which is to, it really means afterthought or or beside thought, but we we, we take from it the idea of, of changing your mind, right? And w- whatever it is that you think about the information you've taken in is the is is your actions moving forward. You take in information, what you respond to it with is is your action, and so I, I know what you think about things by the direction that you're going. And what Paul's calling for is repentance. He says, the way that you're going is destined a certain way, and God's called you, because of new information, to change your thinking about that. Think about it, again, an afterthought. Think about it alongside of that and change the way that you're going. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, uh, Paul is describing the response to this new information, and he says that they turned from idols to serve the living God. They were, that's exactly where Paul finds himself in Athens. Everybody's serving idols, and he's calling them to change their direction, what they're doing by serving these idols, and, and to serve the true and the living God. So repentance means both a change of mind, but then the change of direction that follows that change of mind. So this is what he's, he's, he's called them to do um, to change their mind. I reiterated that, I guess. So, and, and he said, why? Why should you do this? Not just because things are, things are you're, you're not more... It's not just that you're more informed now. It is because that God has set a time. There's a fixed time where this is going to be called to account. So you you can operate in ignorance for a while. You can operate in informed um, rebellion for a while. But you're only going to last so long closed up in your house until you pass out and die. Right? There's a fixed point where you're going to be called to account for the information that you've been given. And so that's what Paul has has pointed out for them. There's a righteous judgment because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. He will judge the world in righteousness. This is an important um, statement because you need to think about it in the context of the people he's saying it to. You've you've got a group of people, the Stoics, who believe that everything is just going to to come by law, and they need to be indifferent to it. And so how can you have a, a righteous judgment about something you can't change? Right? If it's just going to happen regardless of what I do, and I'm just supposed to endure it and get the most out of it, that's the stoic philosophy. How can you have a righteous judgment about, about something I, I can't have any say in what does or doesn't happen? You're just supposed to kind of, remember, be, go, go through life stoically, unaffected, if you will. And then you've got the other group of people who say, look, God, the gods are distant and removed. There's nobody that can come and say, you know, how I should have lived my life. They can't call me to account. There's no righteousness in that. And so this would have been a repudiation that there could be a righteous judge that could call everyone into account, regardless of who they are. Well, John 5, 27 says this differently. He has given him, that's Christ, the authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. By, by virtue of who Jesus is, he gets to call us all to account because he is God, the son. But he goes on to, to say, don't marvel at this. And then he ties it again to a judgment. Do not marvel at this because an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Again, this is the fixed day that Paul's arguing about, about the resurrection. A fixed day when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and um, they will come out and uh, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. That's an important idea. Those who have done good. Okay, well, so is this based on my behavior? Uh, And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So this brings up the question, if there's a righteous judge coming... And he's going to judge me based on my goodness or my badness or my evil, as, that, as John says. Okay? So what am I being judged on? Well, the conviction for your deeds. The, the, the thing that you will be held accountable for in, in this terminology is saying good or bad, but it's not your behavior. It is your words. It is your response to the truth. The conviction is for your own deeds, your, your, your beliefs in light of revelation. John, again later, same, same guy, same, same person, making the same uh, case for Jesus, says, when Jesus said, he said, I, can't, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Light and darkness has both to do with knowing the truth, and seeing the truth, and believing the truth, because Christ himself is the light, but it also has to do with being in fellowship, and, 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 to, um, and to be in goodness, and not to be in evil in participating instead. So if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Okay, he, did, he said, I'm not going, Jesus isn't the righteous judge because he, he has the, the title. It's not just that reason, though he is a righteous judge in the sense that he can always choose what is the right application of justice. That's true, but that's not actually the argument that John's going for. He says, the one who rejects me The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken to him will judge him. How will you be judged? Did you do enough good things or did you do too many bad things? That's not the, the argument that John is saying. Jesus himself is saying, it's by my words. Did you believe what I said? Is your faith in who I've declared myself to be and what I'm saying about sin? That's the question. So your, your accountability is to the words that Jesus has spoken. For I have not spoken on my authority, but the Father who sent me himself has given uh, me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So the question is, on the last day, Jesus is not going to say, how much have you done that was good? And then based on that, I'll decide whether or not we can be together. The question is, what did you respond to the truth of who Jesus is and what he taught and what he, and what, and what he, he did uh, for us? in uh, the gospel. So in, in James, that's what we uh, read during uh, the, the music portion. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And the cleansing of your hands is tied to having your heart purified. Why? Because what you think comes from here, and not the other way around. You can't think something into your heart, okay? Out of the heart comes desire. Out of the heart comes your, your behavior and activity. So the other way around. So out of You have your heart purified by God, you have your heart purified by the Spirit, and then you will have your mind uh, unified. How to say that, okay? Because being double-minded here is the person who is of two minds. They're undecided about the information, okay? I I don't know if I uh, agree with everything that Jesus said about himself. I I don't know if I totally agree that um, God is the creator, Right? So people might have all these reservations, and you're categorized as somebody who's being double-minded. You're agnostic, or at least you're claiming to be. It's not that the information isn't there. It's that you're skeptical of the information that's there. Okay? In that sense, you are, you're double-minded, and you're called to come away from that. And by coming away from that, that's how you are, are, are cleansed. So being in between or being unresolved is the exact opposite of repenting. Okay, you're called to change your mind about the way that you're thinking and have it in alignment with what's true. That's that's what repentance would look like, to change, to have your mind change because your heart's been changed, and then to align with what's true. So when you're when you're double-minded about that, you, you can't repent, or you can't repent half-heartedly. Can I say it that way? There are no half-hearted, half-convinced converts. It's it's a it's a it's a are they're, they're, they're paradoxical. You can't exist together. Now don't. Don't hear me say, there's no, there's no place for doubt in the Christian faith. It is that you, you can't repent half-heartedly. Okay? That's an important distinction. You can't be in between. You can't be lukewarm. Jesus says this in Revelation when he's writing to Laodicea. He says, it, you, because you're not hot or cold, because you're, because you're not either for me or against me, like, because you're somewhere in the middle, you're undecided about this thing, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That's a picture of rejection. Okay? You've got to be one or the other. You can't be double-minded. You've been given the information. Now make a decision. And so Paul has put this information before them. He uses the resurrection as the proof of the means. And then there's some response. It says some mocked. Some mocked. And then some said, we'll hear you again about this. We'll hear you again about this. When? That's an important question. Because I think if you put a little ellipsis, a little there, the three dots, like later? When will you hear more about this? So in 2 Peter uh, 3 talks about the different responses that will happen once the, the revelation is. It's like the end times are, uh, is, is Peter's way of saying that the ends of the ages have come upon us because God's, God's given the fullness of everything he's going to do, and now we're living in the last times, the last days. And he's saying, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. The people that are skeptical, they're going to see uh, the revelation that's in uh, general, uh, creation. They're going to hear specific information, and they're going to be—they're going to say, "I don't think that's true." They're just going to scoff at it, right? You know what that? Okay, that's a scoff. And the last thing was scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So, what comes? Where did the scoff come from? It comes from the heart, because they—they they desire something else to be true. I hear your information, and I don't like it. Okay? They scoff against it, and so this is their response. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This is an important statement because it attaches the scoffing to the truth of the promise of resurrection. He says, ever since the beginning of time, everybody's been dying. Nobody's been resurrected to life. And so they're going to scoff based on the, the visible information around them. Okay? They're going to take in what the world has to offer, and they're going to say, I conclude differently because of this reason. And so that's why the resurrection is that, that paramount apex thing of importance. And so there's different responses that I think we see in scoffing. You say, I need more of something. I need, I need more, I don't know, maybe I need more information, okay? There's, there's one group of people that says, I hear what you have to say. I've looked at creation. I kind of examined my own life and the way that I, I've gone through the world and, and how I feel about things. And sometimes this is, um, I'm not intellectually convinced, like, in the academic sense. I, I think what you're saying could be true, but intellect is used as a defense mechanism, as a shield. It goes to this materialist idea of the universe, where if I can't taste it and touch it and feel it and, and measure it, then it has to be, it's less true, it's less real than what I can taste touch. And so the idea that intellect is is somewhere attached to only the physical things, and and then faith is somewhere out here in the woo, like fairy realm is, is this idea where I, I can't just turn off my brain, like I'm unconvinced in my brain and therefore I can't believe. And so people object to coming to God or responding to God and they use intellect as this, as this fig leaf, if you will, okay? But you're still naked underneath because you have the information, right? You're, you're trying to use this disguise of intellect to say, I, 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 if you gave me more information, then I would be convinced. But that, that statement's usually not true, because no matter how much more information you give them, they'll, they'll never be convinced intellectually to believe something in their hearts. Okay, and so the the, the scientific facts uh, seem to be compared to this the philosophical values, and they're, and they're left as this contrast. And so they want to debate the information that's given, and and Paul's not out to debate whether or not it's true. He just said this is the way it is. So you can respond to it, you can take it or leave it, but this is what it truly is. And so you have to understand that the metaphysical truths and the spiritual truths are just as real as the, uh, the intellectual, scientific truths that are out there. And so people might scoff because of this idea of, I need more information. Another reason why they might scoff is because they said, I need more time. Like, I, I think this might be true, but it's, um, it's not convenient for me, <laughs> right? Uh, just, like, it's really easy to do when you're young. Because the, because the pool of sin says that will be fun for a while. And if I can, if I can wait long enough to repent, then at least I'll have, I'll have fun for a while. And then then I'll repent at, right before that bus hits me and I die. How many of you guys did that? Don't lie. Okay? This is that I, I can delay and still get the same offer. Right? And, and the idea that um, it presumes upon God in a lot of ways. First of all, you're not guaranteed the next breath let alone tomorrow or 10 years down the road after you're done sowing your wild oats right He's said like, i just just give me some more time I'll, I'll delay the fact that i need to make this decision and this i think is probably the most dangerous of these it's like intellect i think can be overcome when it's when it's um when it's pointed out for what it is but um, delaying um, allows us to sit in a dangerous place under accountability for too long and what happens is we come the thing that actually at one point said, man, that's true. If that's true, I'm in trouble. There's conviction in that, right? There's conviction in that moment, but the longer you sit with it, the more comfortable you become with it, right? And so what Hebrews argues is that there are are people that will sit amongst the people of God and they'll partake in what it is they call the heavenly blessings. They partake in what the Holy Spirit has given this community and us as a people. And they sit in that. And even though they're not actually convinced or convicted, they've they've never repented they begin to assume the identity of everybody else around them, okay? And he says, it's impossible to restore those kinds of people to repentance. Let me say that again. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Why? Because you sat so long in the hot water, it started to become lukewarm. And then you didn't even notice you were in hot water anymore. Does that make sense? The conviction is gone. It's hard to reset that. It's not impossible, but it's hard in that sense, okay? It's hard for me to preach that into you. It's the most dangerous thing you can do is to sit in church your whole life but never respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. At best, you're resisting the work. At worst, you're quenching it so that it won't come. The other thing is you just might convince yourself that you're part of us, but you're never really part of us. And then your response later on down the road is like, these people are all fake. You know, I've never experienced the thing they're talking about. Like, I think that's all, they're, I'm out of here, right? And you leave. And in your mind, you say, I had the same thing they had, and it's not true. But you didn't have the same thing we had. You, ne- you were never in fully, and so you never experienced that way, and so you went out from us. And so John argues, the reason why people go out from us is because they were never really of us. Okay? So there's the sense where you sit for, you sit with it too long, you delay too long. And then you, you either become this thing where you, you sit in the church your whole life, but you never become a Christian, okay? Or you sit in the church your whole life, and you become more skeptical and more jaded and more hard, and you walk away. And you talk about it like it was never true, but you were never truly in. You're tracking with those, okay? So that's another scoffing reason. And then the last one is just fully, I just like, I don't see how what you're saying is connected to anything that I can put my, my confidence in. I need proof. This is somebody who denies. Oh, let me give you one more scripture out of Hebrews because it says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in, in, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, which would lead you to fall away from the living God. Now, you, you, uh, it's, a, it's a contradiction to say you're a Christian, but you have an evil, unbelieving heart. If you have an evil, unbelieving heart, you're not a Christian, okay? So, so hear that first of all. So don't let that be an evil, believing heart, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. So right now, what's today? It's today. So as long as it's called today, I, my, my job and your job is to exhort one another, don't have an evil, unbelieving heart in you. Don't, don't do it. Why? Because if you hear his voice, then today you respond to it. That's, that's, the, that's the impetus. That's the, that's the drive. Say, is it today? And, and are you sitting in conviction? Then respond to it. Don't delay, okay? So that's the end of the delay. But now moving to those who just scoff in, in total rejection. I, I don't believe that's true. And, and maybe it's a combination of these things, right? It can be, it doesn't have to be exclusively, you know, delay. It doesn't have to be exclusively debate. It could be a, a culmination of those things that actually cause somebody to say, like, I don't have the proof and so I deny your truth. Or I deny, I deny your truth because of my own personal truth. But Paul says that our faith does not rest on the wisdom of man, or at least the reasoning capabilities, our faculties, and what we can acquire, or when we think about the right time is. Our faith rests on the wisdom of God and the power of God in the gospel. We see that some people did respond. Some people do respond to this message. It says, and some believed, and then he lists these people who do believe, and some of them are intellectuals. Part of the area, she's an Areopagite, or he is, sorry, an Areopagite. That's somebody, a member of this council. So remember that, that intellectual objection? That, that truly doesn't apply to everyone. It's just sometimes used as an objection. Some people believed, and how did they do it? They showed it with their action. I know what you believe by what you do. And what you believe comes from what's in your heart. Okay, your heart informs your mind and then your actions. And so the rest of that Peter passages says this, For what they deliberately overlook. So when they make this objection, they're scoffing. They're scoffing. Hey, from the beginning of time, everyone's died. No one's been resurrected. I don't believe what you have to say. He says they're overlooking something. What are they overlooking? Well, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of God's power, God's word. That's what Paul's argued. God is the creator God. He, he created everything, and he created you. And he put all the nations where they're supposed to be, and he did that so that they would seek him. And he's made this argument, and then he winds up in the fact that there's going to be a judgment, a righteous judgment. And by means of these, the world that was, existed was deluged with water. That's talking about the flood in Noah. That God created this world, he looked at it, and then he, he judged it. And then out of that, many perished. And by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up again for another judgment by fire and kept until the day when destruction of the ungodly. That is, that's what Paul's arguing for. There's a fixed day. Here's, now what are you going to do with it? And it's going to be, you're going to be judged in Christ. Do not overlook this fact. Beloved, the, the, the time, like the amount of time that God's been patient is for a purpose. For with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. But the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. This thing that you're scoffing about, saying there's no, nobody's, everybody's dying, nobody's being resurrected. I don't see, I don't think your judgment's real because I can't see it. He says, he's being patient to do this because it's leading you somewhere. Why? So that all will reach repentance. That's why God is being patient. He's he's delaying for your benefit. It's it's God's graciousness to you. We we conclude God's God's not there because he's waiting so long. Or he's he's distant. He's he's indifferent to what it is that I'm doing. And so it comes down to what, what do I have assurance of? Some joined him believed, and so it comes down to, what, what is my final denial, or why, why would you finally deny? So what assurances do we have in the gospel? The gospel is the, is the good news. It's not good advice. It's not, it's not a hopeful, we think this might be the case. It is the guarantee of something. So the assurance is, is an important thing that we have to get our, our hands around. The gospel is the assurance of Pardon. Because it's a response to what God has actually done. Okay? In Christ, it's a response to what God has actually done. It's a response to what's actually true. Salvation is the assurance of the thing that we hope for, which is pardon from God and to be with him forever. So we have objections to this, like natural objections. My, well, how, how can I, how, why should I believe that? Like my sin or my past or what I observe in the world, like how do I overcome that? And this God who is not immediately calling to account our sin, because if he did, we wouldn't get our next breath, right? Because he's not doing that, he's wanting to get us to the place where we recognize his graciousness, and that leads us to repentance. So Paul has said, look, there wasn't a full picture before. Before, in previous times and ages past, it was not known, but now it is known, so that by Jesus' words, his teachings, by who he actually was, by his public crucifixion, by his resurrection, by his ascension, he's calling us to account. So rather than there being an inaccessible God who's indifferent to our plight, who's not involved, we have the exact opposite. We have a God who came, who overcame our ignorance, who revealed himself both in the scriptures and in the Son, and then went, while at the right time, to the cross to, to pay for our sins so that we would have an assurance of something that we were indifferent to in the beginning. The evidence of this is you're invited to scrutinize it and then to believe it. Other religions, other beliefs, other philosophies deal with Gnostic truths. They're secret truths, which you can attain if you work hard enough or you try hard enough or you, you put in enough sacrifice and eventually you attain to enlightenment. Eventually you get to the secret, you know, Platform of whatever it is that they believe, and Christianity is the exact opposite of that. It is it is Christ revealing um, him, God to everyone equally, giving you privileged access that you don't have otherwise. So that everyone is is invited to the same thing. We're all invited to the the same response. What do you make of the claim of Jesus? Is is the heart of this question? This is. Fundamentally, what, what will you do with information about Christ? Which is the question that um, C.S. Lewis poses in, in Mere Christianity. Okay, He said, Jesus didn't leave room for you to say he's a good teacher. He's not just a nice guy that we should, we should try to aspire to be like. He wasn't just a good dude. Okay, He doesn't leave room for that. If, if, if what Jesus was or what he said he was is not true, then his claims are dangerous. They're evil. Because he said, I am the son of God. I am the payment for sin. Like, if if Jesus is not who he said he was, then he says there's three, you can say he's he's Lord. You can conclude rightly. He's a liar. He just came and lied the whole time, in which case he shouldn't be trusted at all, or he was crazy. He was deluded in himself, and you shouldn't trust him either, right? So Lord, liar, lunatic, what will you do with the information about who God is? You could scoff for a number of reasons or you could believe. And you're, you're called to believe and the proof of your belief is your repentance. The proof of what you do is by how you act afterward. So what will you do with these claims? Let us draw near to God with a true heart, full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, and our bodies washed with the pure water. The full assurance of faith is how we're, we're told to, to trust and what God has done. Because he's publicly displayed everything for us. He invites us in. So, I implore you today, whatever your objection is or what you may or may not have had previously, if you're not a believer, don't, don't sit here for another day and heap condemnation on yourself. Or whatever it is that God's called you to account for. If he's revealing sin in your heart, did, you respond to that and Repent.